0: Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law.
1: And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law.
0: Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hello, Ned.
1: Hey, Fernita. Good to see you. How are you?
0: Good to see you, too. Um, So, busy time, right? We are officially entering into fall. um, Two months, a little bit over two months shy of Election Day. Um, And so, I know that I've been wondering, and I'm sure our listeners have been wondering as well, how are you sleeping? And even even more pointedly, two months out, what are you worried about, Ned? It's a lot going on in the news. I just, I really would love to know What's
1: top of mind for you? Um, Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that I am worried. I think I am even more worried than I was before, which is not a good sign since I was pretty worried, as you know, earlier. I guess top of mind, my biggest worry is I just don't see what a concession speech in the presidential election looks like this year, Um, given now that we've had the two conventions behind us and... You know, the level of acrimony and polarization. um, I mean, our politics seems even more dire. Um, Each side perceives the election so existential to the future of the country from their values and perspectives. Um, I mean, I know we have our own personal views on this and I try to keep my own personal views away from my election integrity electoral process uh, um, perspective. I just don't know how the system holds together and works this year, to be honest.
0: So so clarification for our listeners, um, does concessions have any legal effect, though? Like, what do you see as the importance of a concession in this context?
1: Yeah, great point. No, in a way, the concession speeches have no legal uh, effect whatsoever. Um, but elections are both a matter of law and a matter of politics, uh, and they those two factors intersect uh and but ultimately there has to be some sort of closure i mean somebody has to be president on january 20th and if half the country refuses to accept the outcome as either fair or valid or legitimate we can talk about the differences of those terms then how do we keep the peace i mean maybe we keep it through just the force of of arms and military power, but that doesn't look like a successful democracy holding itself together. And I don't mean to be quite so dire, and maybe uh, this oh, is all You know, you're speaking my language.
0: <laughs> yeah, speak I said, you're speaking my language, dire. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do think that you raise important points. And it's not, you know, to be scary or gloom and doom, but the reality is that our system has been held together with, you know, tape and toothpicks and, and super glue, right? So, Um, To some extent, I think we have become numb to the destruction of political norms. So, you know, this week, the president accepted the Republican nomination from the White House, which I think, you know, under any other administration, everyone would have been up in arms and, you know, shouting from the rooftops about how illegal that is. Right. But I think we've learned to accept that there's a certain amount of norm breaking going on such that it has become the norm. Um, And but it it makes me wonder the extent to which that bleeds over into November. Right. So even if let's say the president loses, uh, will anyone actually blink if he refuses to concede? Does do people really think that as of January 20th, we won't have a new president just because the president refused to concede? Um, Or is the broader concern that his refusal to concede might signal something to his supporters about the legitimacy of the next president? Is this a different type of norm than the norm breaking that we've seen such that we should be concerned? I'm just trying to sort of position it in the broader scope of concerns that we have over everything that's going on.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right to think about this as a sort of a dynamic or interactive quality. Um, I think and and I hate to do this, but sort of to unpack just how you're, you set it up as a premise, um, if the president loses, uh, I, I do think that if everybody in America thought he lost except for him, then we wouldn't have anything really to worry about. Uh, but I do think the question of whether he thinks it's contestable whether he won or lost, how that relates to whether other people in his own party or his own supporters think he won or lost. So so I, I can't take it as a given that he's lost unless there's a consensus that that's true and, and, and who's inside that consensus and who's not. And, and by the way, as, as important as it is to focus on whether the president might not concede defeat when others think he's lost, we've seen some uh, reason in the last week or so to worry about that from the other side as, as, as well. Um, I don't know if you saw the interview, of the Hillary Clinton did, I think, was on HBO Showtime, where she's encouraging uh, Vice President Biden not to concede. Now, I think if you look at that interview, she is thinking just about election night and not the whole process. But, But some of her language could be interpreted as quite categorical or absolutist in that regard. Just don't concede under any circumstances, I think was how she phrased it. And I think that's just reflective of the fact that the Democrats had their convention spending most of the time saying that the country would be intolerable if if the president were reelected uh and you know whatever one thinks of the of the that is a matter of their own personal political beliefs if if neither side can accept that the other side is is capable of governing the country and that the country is tolerable if the other side wins Um, that makes it harder to be willing to accept the numbers of what the vote count is. So the premise, I think, on whether or not there's agreement that, you know, either Trump is lost or Biden is lost, it's going to be harder to get that consensus as to what the numbers actually show, given how strong the passions are on both sides about wanting to win and wanting the numbers to be on their side.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I honestly think that the concessions take on even more importance given the litigation and the struggles that we're seeing in the states and and their attempt to sort of, you know, come to some agreement about how voters can cast ballots and trying to make things, you know, trying to really prepare for the onslaught of mail-in ballots. And, um, you know, but there's there's a lot of litigation. And I think that adds to the confusion about um, the outcome such that when you have one party or the other refusing to concede, that only contributes to this sense that the election was not fairly held. Um, so, so maybe we should turn to that a little bit and talk about Pennsylvania, for example. I know has been top of mind for you about some of the things going on there um, that may have serious implications for November.
1: Right, and and I, I I am worried about Pennsylvania because it's been identified as a battleground state, and so could be pivotal for the electoral college determination. Um, it's also a state that hasn't really been in that limelight quite as intensely obviously it was important in 2016 but there wasn't litigation over it to the same extent as say florida's had a litigation or even ohio uh, or north carolina even and so, um, and i don't believe i'm the only one who's a little worried that its rules and procedures for counting votes makes it potentially more source of problems. Uh, Right, right. And and one of those is just the timing issue. Right now, there's a bill pending in the state legislature that would allow for absentee ballots, vote by mail ballots to be pre-canvassed. And what that would mean would be, you wouldn't count them before election day, but you would look at the envelopes, verify the eligibility of the voters, check signatures, do all of that pre-processing that would make it easier to Count the ballots and just run the electoral uh, administration quickly on election day and in the first few days after that. Uh, but that l- l- proposal hasn't passed the legislature yet, and whether it does or doesn't, I think there are other aspects of the process, as I understand it, that could delay the counting. That it, it in any state it's possible to challenge the validity of absentee ballots for lack of a signature, right. as it should be. No ballot is entitled to be counted until it's verified. But as I look at Pennsylvania's laws in this regard, they don't all fit together in a way that hangs sensibly to me from a timing perspective. Um, The the rules for certification of the uh, results of the canvas and the rules for absentee votes, it just makes me nervous and part of what happened in the June 2nd primary and how long it took to count votes in that. And that's not the general election with all the volume of ballots or the intensity of the litigation. You know, if I had to uh, identify a battleground state that I thought might be at risk of just not finishing the counting process on time, unfortunately, I think it might be Pennsylvania.
0: Although I do have to say, um, having lived in Florida for eight years prior to living in California, I don't know anything about living in a state where the rules don't hang together when it comes <laughs> to elections. <laughs> but I will say, Ned, when I saw that the governor and the state legislature were at odds about this pending legislation, it reminded me of Wisconsin. Um, I'm not entirely sure if... I, I believe the governor and the state legislature are of the same party, right? But they just have dif- disagreements. Correct? No, me on it's, that?
1: it's just like Wisconsin in that oh, the, it is. Yeah, the in 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 all three of the so-called rust belt battlegrounds from 2016, so Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, they all three have democratic governors and all three have legislatures where both houses are uh, in the Republican majority at the moment. So that sets up the conflict. Now, interestingly about Pennsylvania, and I'm not an expert on Pennsylvania politics, but I, I do understand that the the legislature that gets voted into office this November actually starts sitting in December.
0: Oh, wow, okay.
1: Which, which is sort of relevant for electoral college deadlines. Yeah. But the folks that I talk to in Pennsylvania don't anticipate um, you know, partisan flipping of control in terms of the state senate or the state. House. So I think it's okay. reasonable to assume that the Republicans will still be in the majority in both chambers of the state legislature.
0: Right. So I wasn't wrong in sort of getting Wisconsin vibes. And we know how well that turned out, <laughs> um, which is not well at all. Right. right. So I'm um, hopefully that they, they are able to come to some resolution. But I, I do want to sort of emphasize something for our listeners that you pointed to um, three states in which, you know, there will be some concerns in November. Michigan is another one. Right. Democratic governor, Republican legislature, it's been very contentious with COVID restrictions, very contentious. Uh, Jocelyn Benson, who's an election law professor and also their secretary of state has, um, I remember she sent out a, a social media, on social media, she talked about uh, racist robocalls that are going out to voters um, that um, are trying to discourage African-American voters from voting, um, which I think will become more and more common as we get closer to the election. Um, and so, not only do we have to worry about gridlock between different branches of the state government over these issues, but also sort of retail level efforts to discourage voters from from voting. Um, so, so what do we do, right? So, so how do we, I don't even know how to ask the question because I'm just so devastated by all of this, right? It's like, um, you know, we have COVID, we have regular partisan wrangling over casting a ballot. And on top of that, robocalls that are very reminiscent of 2016 and trying to exploit the racial fault lines that um, run through our our partisan politics. Like as a voter, how do you deal with this? As an election law scholar, how do you make sense of it? I don't even know what to tell people.
1: Right, well, um, this may be a sign from the heavens because just as you asked, what do you do? Um, I heard a real thunderclap outside my window. <laughs> I don't know if my microphone can pick it up, but it was a sign from <laughs> on high that <laughs> the heavens are listening or, and are warning us about, right. about this. I, you know, I think it goes back to your point about norms. I think, a, you know, the phrase civil society has, at least for me, a connotations of civility. Um, you know, we've obviously had periods of American history with incredible ugliness to our politics. And it doesn't matter if politics are polite if significant portions of the population are disenfranchised. So I don't want to suggest that civility is the be all and end all. Um, but I, I do think democracy, a functioning democracy, a healthy democracy has a certain amount of basic respect for fellow citizens and the kind of robocalls that you're talking about, the ugliness, the reprehensibility, if that's a word of just to try to suppress the vote of fellow citizens, it just it's just it's a cancer on our on who we are as a people. um, I think there now there's always going to be some bad actors, right? Uh, um, And I also worry that that. And I'd be curious to your reaction to what I'm about to say, because I don't want to minimize, again, the ugliness of this. But I, I'm afraid that if, if the climate and the public discussion is just politics isn't working, everybody hates each other, we can't do this, that sort of is a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of we can't possibly trust the results because nobody believes in the system anymore. Um, you know, so I, I don't want to I mean, I think I have to be honest. If I if I'm nervous about the process, or or I think we're we have troubling signs, I can't sugarcoat it. But but I also don't want to contribute to a overly alarmist assessment of of the situation because again, for a democracy to work, there has to be some degree of acceptance and trust in the in the system and. And again, can we govern ourselves despite the ugliness? Because we're going to have, it's already started, right? So we're going to have a very mm-hmm. ugly September and October in, just in terms of retail politics, like you're saying. Yeah. Um, but what does that mean for November and the sense of whether we have an outcome that can be respected as an exercise of, of the will of the people? I don't know, what, what do you think?
0: So um, part of it depends on how angry people are. I think in 2018, people were very angry. Right. Which is why you saw um, uh, un- unprecedented numbers of, of voters turning out in an off year election. Right. Because people were angry. People are angry this year. Um, but it's all taking place in a framework that we're, we're not familiar with. And I think that's the concern. Not only do we have to worry about covid, but this everything is still occurring at a time of unprecedented um, racial unrest. Right. The um, There was a. Um, uh, young black man in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who got shot in the back seven times, right? Jacob Blake by the police um, in front of his children, um, f- further leading to more unrest in this country around this issue. And, you know, people are exhausted. And and normally I would say when people are exhausted, that means that in November, you're gonna see huge turnout, right? Because usually that, that level of emotion can drive turnout. Um, but I do wonder, you know, if will it drive turnout in a time where people have sort of reached their peak? Where they just want to throw their hands up. And I worry that we've gotten to that point um, where that that loss of faith in the system might actually manifest at the polls. But I'm hoping not. Right. Because I'm so first of all, I don't trust anything that I see in my Twitter feed. I don't trust anything that I see on Facebook because I tend to follow people who agree with me. (laughs) And I know and I know that I just have a certain view of the world. You know, like I, I believe in the power of voting and, you know, I just I think it is one of the most important things in our system but in watching everything unfold um in the last five or six months uh, i've also had to sort of come to the realization and i've made this point to you in a, a prior um recording that uh you it's hard to tell people to vote when in in the face of such disenfranchisement right i mean we have states private actors you know i.e robocalls actively working to keep people from the ballot right? And then my message is, hey, everybody go vote, right? And they're like, well, I'm trying to vote, but the state's making it really hard for me to vote, right? And so, but it's things like that that make people lose faith in the system. Um, One of the things that I found really inspiring about the DNC is it actually touches on this issue. I felt like Michelle Obama's speech was very honest about the fact that, hey, you might be in line three hours, right? And I feel like that's the conversation that need to be having right as opposed to just blindly encouraging people to vote the message needs to be yes not only do you need to vote it might be really really hard to vote and you still have to go vote right um and this is in addition to not only do you need to vote you also need to march you also need to protest these are all things that are working together in order to protect our democracy that's why the nba's actions this week in canceling games in response to jacob blake being shot is is really important because you have people who are they're basically in a bubble, right? Um, but they are sort of taking a stand and setting a standard for um, saying no more, right? And, and so in some ways it is an example of, when I see things like that, it, it renews my faith in the system, right? The, our faith in the system can't come from the people who are trying to take away our vote or trying to take a, or make things more difficult, right? Our faith in the system has to come from our fellow citizens who are saying enough is enough and they're gonna stand for the democracy. Right, LeBron James is, you know, he has a whole, um, like, I don't, I don't know if they're an organization, but it's kind of like a, a collection of other NBA players and prominent people who are organizing around voting. Right, so it's I, I feel like it's gonna be private individuals like that who are sort of the next wave of protection, which I'm happy about, but I'm also really sad about, because as an election law scholar, I believe that it is the state's responsibility to make sure that citizens are able to vote and that the state's responsibility also extends to facilitating the channels of voting, right? Not making it harder to vote. Um, So the fact that private citizens have to stand in, stand up and do something about this, it's wonderful, but it's also a really, really tragic sort of view of who we've become.
1: Yeah, so a couple of quick thoughts, one is, i assume the reason why some people try to suppress the vote is because it's so important so i i would hope that the reaction is not to let the vote suppressors prevail but to realize just how important it is and redouble the effort and and i do think you know any statement that says they may may try to make it harder but you but you know don't let them win right i mean in right. other words uh i think is is important um I think president obama's speech which i think was a very important speech about the nature of democracy and if i'm not mistaken president obama taught election law uh, before (laughs) way back when uh, so know something about this topic um you know he and this goes to your point about the relationship between the government and the people you know as important as i think it is that the government not try to oppress its citizens i do think ultimately we the people are the custodian of our own democracy and 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 if if it fails it ultimately fails because we've let it fail as a as a collective group of people and not and not you know now again obviously there's been oppression around the world and it's you know sometimes it's hard for the the people themselves to to resist an oppressive government. So I don't wanna oversimplify this, but I, I think we do have responsibility for our own democratic system and our relationship with each other as citizens and, and, and with the whole whole process.
0: Um, I honestly think I've been romanticized by the Warren Court era and sort of the 1960s, right? Like I, I think about the fact that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act was bar- bipartisan legislation, right? And then I compare it to what's going on now, and I'm just, I just, I'm just like, how did we get here? And I have to remind myself that where we are now is more indicative of where we have been historically than the 1960s, right? The 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 period of relative peace that we had post sort of '68 on in our politics, and of course there were times of contention, right? Watergate, um, uh, the rise of the religious right. You know, there were periods in our In the last 50 years where you saw the parties kind of at odds but generally speaking it wasn't a time of high polarization like it is now um but when you think about history more generally we have been polarized more often than we have not been and i just have to remind myself of that because i do think it goes to your point about the people being the custodians of democracy right because i do think polarization means that you cannot depend on your elected officials to protect democracy by definition, the parties are polarized. And so what that means is that they're going to do whatever they need to do in order to win elections, regardless if it's good for the, the voters or not. Um, and so I agree 100 uh, percent. Ultimately, it does fall with, on us to protect it. Uh, but I do think that part of it is just I have this nostalgia, which kind of makes no sense. It's not like I was alive in the 1960s, to be clear. But I kind of have this nostalgia for a time in which the right to vote wasn't a partisan issue. Right. I, I kind of wish that people on, um, you know, universally viewed it as a good that citizens are entitled to and that it shouldn't be a bridge. You know, kind of like what the Constitution says a little bit. Um, and I say a little bit because the Constitution could actually do a better job, which is something that we've talked about in protecting the right to vote. Um, but we, you know, prior to this time, we did have all of these sort of democratic norms that we would, you know, give voice to in an effort to convince the, the rest of the world that we were actually a democracy. Um, but it's like, we've abandoned that too. Uh, if you look at the litigation, a lot of the litigation going on around the country with respect to COVID and elections and voting, none of, none of it really says democracy to me, right? Everything that is going on to some extent is a reflection of the fact that many of us have given up on that vision. I won't say most of us, I continue to hope that most of us still sort of adhere to this view that America is a democracy and we're just in the process of fighting for it. If I'm right, if most people believe that, then there will be huge turnout in November, and this is true regardless of who wins.
1: That's right. But here, here's what I'm worried about is the, is the disaffected, the 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 the, the parts of the base of the polarized parties. They really don't want to take no for an answer. And I'm not suggesting that they're morally equivalent. I'm just, from a governor's point of view, they're all citizens. Um, and so what do we do about? So if it's 30% on one side or 30% on the other side, you, you what do you do? So so you know, imagine that Trump wins re-election. I I can see particularly given how ugly the campaign has started to become and frankly how you know overtly racialized some of his messaging seems to be uh, that that I you know and again I don't you know I, I want to um, I'm curious again as to your thoughts on this but I could imagine voters who vote against Trump saying how could we possibly have another four years of this? He, he doesn't really treat me as an equal citizen of this country. It's not a, you know, it's, it's gonna be an oppressive tyranny if he gets another four years. What is, this country is not, doesn't believe in me, doesn't value me, doesn't really treat me as a citizen. How, how can we have a system of government that lets him win? Um, so, you know, what if that's where we are in November? That, Conversely, you know, there's I don't know, again, I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but there are there's a portion of the, um, you know, ardent segment of the populist wing of the Republican Party who, you know, feels like, again, is, you know, the, the, that Biden's coming for their Second Amendment guns, you know, and that that it'll be a tyranny if, if Biden wins and the country will be lost and they can't possibly survive another four years of socialism. Right? I mean, talk about the apoplectic nature of the rhetoric, right? So you can't we can't have an America that is the tyranny and socialism that the Biden administration would bring. So how does how does the the voters that are defeated at the polls accept the legitimacy of the defeat? and allow the governance of the of the winning party that's that's what i mean i mean and 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 because of that i think there will be a claim to try to delegitimate the vote because we have a system that says whoever wins the election is entitled to govern for four years so one way to try to undercut the capacity of the opponent from governing is to try to say well they didn't really win and, and, and so my effort to keep that person out of office is, is, is an OK effort because they actually didn't properly win, so I don't need to be governed by them for four years.
0: So yes, I think the people who are firmly against the president and the people who are firmly against his opponent um, will engage in rhetoric that I think both you and I would consider dangerous. Um but I also think it's sort of within the scope the scope of norm- normalcy. Um so so let me let me tell you something that this references back to a conversation I had with my undergrads this week. Um, we were talking about political polarization and you know one of them reminded me, um based off of the we were discussing the readings that The Civil War really was a time in which our institutions proved unable to facilitate our politics, right? And I think that, um, you know, most political scientists and historians sort of think about the Civil War as that type of moment, right? Um, So that reminder was really important for me this week, though, because in my frustrations about everything that's happening, I had to ask myself, are we at that point, right? Have our institutions broken down such that it cannot accommodate our differences? And I don't think that we're at that point even if we end up with rhetoric that is careless, like for example, with uh, Hillary Clinton this week saying that Biden shouldn't concede, right? That's, her rhetoric was certainly careless, right? Even if, you know, in context, it's about sort of don't concede unless we know for sure about absentee ballots and the count and all like, but it's still careless rhetoric, right? Um, Also careless rhetoric, even dangerous rhetoric threatening violence. But people threaten violence every election cycle, right? Um, so so, so for me, it's a different question as to whether or not our institutions have truly broken down such that the only thing that remains is war. Um, and I don't think we're there. Another reason I don't think we're there, and I think that this should be a point of optimism, is that, um, and you actually put me onto this, Ned. Remember, you were talking about the secession movement in 1802, 1803 with Northeastern Federalists. So... Um, after the Revolutionary War, you know, new country, they were really mad about Thomas Jefferson winning in 1800. And so there were all, all of this discussion about Federalists in the Northeast seceded. One of the things that struck me about that um, that episode in history is the fact that it was only two decades out from the Revolutionary War. Right. So talk of secession didn't seem weird. Right. They had just left Great Britain. Um, so it was a it was really about proximity, right? That for them, culturally, if they felt like their politics were incompatible with the southern slave owners, then it, maybe it made sense to break off. We are 150 years out from the Civil War, right? People have no idea what they're talking about when they, they talk about seceding from the Union. They have no idea what that entails. In contrast, people talking about seceding from the Union in 1802, yeah, they, they know a little bit about it. Right, So I just kind of look at it as another instance of careless rhetoric, because honestly, because of proximity and time, people have no sense of what a huge commitment it is to say, I'm leaving the union, or we're gonna have a violent uprising, or you know, this president doesn't represent me, so I'm gonna grab my guns, right? So I just, I don't know. I, but when I, when I thought about it that way, I felt more upbeat about November now, of course, we'll have problems and people will be mad and there'll be craziness. Um, but it, it sort of put me more in line with what happened in 2000 as a possibility. Right. Maybe we'll repeat that, which was horrible, but we got past it. Um, and I, I also think that 2020 might be horrible, but I still think that our politics are such that we will get past it.
1: Well, I'm really glad you said all of that, because I think that's really the most important key point. and point. And, uh, and it is the grounds for optimism of, of anything that we said so far in this podcast we should try to bottle that because it is the <laughs> it's the potion that we should be drinking because it's <laughs> it's the optimism um, and funnily enough that you put it that way because I, I um, in an email I sent to somebody today I said you know I worried in fact that the relevant analogy wasn't 1876 but was 1860 in you know, right because because <laughs> I do think 18 Sixty is the ultimate failure of it right because the the losing side refused to accept to defeat i mean as bad as eighteen seventy six was or as two thousand was you know we did stitch our, i mean eighteen seventy six was a lot worse than two thousand because mm-hmm. the compromise ended reconstruction and and caused a century or more of tyranny. so I don't really want to minimize that but but it it still wasn't the civil war that eighteen sixty was um and so to the extent that it is overly rhetorical just to think we're like 1860 it's it's good to kind of calm the, us down and say that's you know too much but i will exactly. say that that i have seen some journalism which worries that you know that 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 the conditions of american politics if not at 1860 levels are approaching that in a way that haven't in anybody's living memory, kind of, kind of thing. And you know, I, I, unlike you, I was alive in 1968, but, but still a little kid. So I don't have. I do, and I do remember the assassinations that year. Um, but I, I wasn't really politically conscious. Uh, right. um, so I don't really know whether. But I, I guess I was. Uh, I do think politics this year feels dangerous to me, in a way that even as a kid I felt like, you know, the concerns of about nineteen sixty eight, you know, while I mean the Vietnam War was going, there was you know awareness of a rioting in the cities and so forth, um, but there is a kind of ugliness to what's going on now that I don't remember being aware of as a kid or and reflecting that through Watergate as I came of consciousness. I didn't. Things do feel different for me. Right. Right. I agree.
0: Yeah, I I think it feels different. But I also sort of remind myself that um, we're still coming from a place of privilege. Right. I think back to like Fannie Lou Hamer and others, you know, being from the Mississippi Delta, trying to right. prove that you have political value and status and status as a human being. Right. But just also that you have, a, you know, a political voice that needs to be heard, fighting for voting rights. Like, you know, as as much as I sort of write and argue and, and think and try to conceptualize the right to vote and argue for expensive voting rights, I'm still not re-litig- relitigating many of the issues that that generation resolved, right? Mm -hmm. So you you do have to sort of think about where we are now, but acknowledge the progress. Um, And I think it's important for one key reason. I think that is why people aren't afraid to fight, (laughs) right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we are, I'm, I'm fighting for voting rights, but I still get to go get up and go to work. I don't have to worry about losing my job. I don't have to worry about my kids not being able to go to school. Um, well, virtually, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't I don't have to worry about I'm not really risking things that earlier generations risk um, in fighting some of these battles. And so even though our politics are terrible, right, um, one thing I'm always struck by is that we have the freedom to speak out. We have the freedom to fight. Uh, when I was younger and more militant, I would say things like, you know, if so-and-so wins the election, I'm moving to Canada. Right. Like, forget this. And I'm like, who the hell do I know in Canada? Like, what am I talking? <laughs> about? No, no, you stay here and you fight, right? You, we have the privilege of fighting, right? So, um, I could absolutely hate what happens in November, um, but I find so much comfort in the fact that you know November fourth on that Wednesday, I can get out there in March, and you know march against what I view as an injustice. If I don't like the election, I can get out there and I can march and I can organize and I can do all of these things that just were not really available safely to earlier generations, right? And there is value in that. Um, And, you know, I do think that is another way of reclaiming our democracy, right? You have to be vocal and you have to be present and you have to be vigilant about Um, saying enough is enough. And so, yes, I'm nervous about November, but if you think about the sustained protests in response to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and now Jacob Blake and others, right, people are so angry that they are not going to go quietly. And I think at the end of the day, that could have some impact in what we see in the upcoming election in a way that matters. So I just try to keep everything in, in perspective and And, you know, writing this book and sort of looking at voter suppression over a 200 year period has really (laughs) forced me to say, okay, like we've come a long way. Uh, We have a long way to go, but we have certainly come a long way. Right. And you have to appreciate the journey.
1: But let me if you don't mind, let me ask you a question about about that, because, um, you know, in 2000, when there was the gap between the national popular vote, which, as you and I have discussed, isn't legally relevant, but right has some rhetorical force to it. Um, in the midst, in the early days at any rate of the whole Bush versus Gore fighting over Florida, there was some question about whether or not an appeal to the national popular vote would, would matter in the hand-to-hand combat over the hanging jads in Florida. And it turned out it didn't. In other words, it turned out that that, that dispute was entirely contained within the confines of the legal system. And so the only question was, OK, who won Florida and whoever won Florida was going to win the Electoral College. And we were going to determine who won Florida according to the rules for counting all these chats and so forth. Um, and based on that, you'd have to predict the same thing would happen this time. But I, I worry or, and wonder, you know, there's I've read a headline this week that said that the that Biden could win the national popular vote by five percentage points or five million votes, you know, in other words, bigger than Hillary Clinton won and still lose the Electoral College. Again, that's mm-hmm. statistical modeling. I don't know if it's accurate. It, it did cross my mind this week for the first time that if we're in a fog of uncertainty over counting absentee ballots for a week or two, and there's contestation over that, that the rhetoric surrounding the popular the overall national popular vote and the and the marching of the streets and the kind of just political ants might create a different uh you know conversation in a different media environment than what happened 20 years ago
0: i do wonder the extent to which the rhetoric you talk about and how events on the ground affect our understanding of what's happening ties into your earlier point about the concession right so Imagine in Florida, 2000, where you have that difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College, and then Bush falls behind in Florida in a recount, um, and then Bush concedes. But then they ultimately determine that he won the state. What then, right? <laughs> we can sit here and say, well, um, concession speeches have no legal effect, but I have a, a hard time believing that wouldn't have had some impact on who our president was came come January 20th, 2001. Um, also think back to, you know, Richard Nixon, 1960, right? He conceded, even though he probably won Illinois, <laughs> right? So, so, so I think the rhetoric on the ground does matter, right? These, you know, protest movements on the ground do matter and they can shape, shape the, the way that we conceive of these election disputes.
1: Um, and so well, let me, um, so oh. no, just to, to add to that point, and, and again, uh-huh. this is a new thought I've had in the last couple of days was, you know, if, if we imagine the, President, after November third and fourth, saying, "Well, how do we know these absentee votes are really valid right. votes? They may all be counterfeit from foreign government or whatever." It, what if the pushback from the Biden team is, "Well, who cares? We won the national popular vote by five million votes. I mean, we think all those absentee ballots are relevant, are valid, and they should put Michigan in my column and Pennsylvania in my column, but." You know, we are not going to let some spurious claim about questioning these absentee ballots. I mean, if you really want to fight about what's relevant and what's if, there's no doubt about. Now, again, that conversation doesn't seem possible 20 years ago because the national vote is not legally relevant. But but I just the claims about legitimacy and illegitimacy seem so volatile at the moment. I, I could imagine you know, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm just going down past I, it.
0: That actually might be a situation that our Constitution can facilitate that type of disagreement, right? Um, let me tap my inner Derek Mueller and just say, maybe just send competing slates to Congress, let them decide, right? Because you also, you know, not coincidentally, I don't think, mention states where you have a Republican, go- I mean, I'm sorry, a, a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, right? So I think that further facilitates the possibility that you could have that type of dispute. Um, even as the campaigns themselves disagree about the validity of some ballots, right? And so maybe that is a situation where it goes uncomfortably. Uh, Now, (laughs) I don't mean to suggest that this is ideal (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination, but um, is that a situation where our institutions can actually accommodate that type of dispute?
1: Yeah, well, um, I I don't know. I mean, I think if... if I mean, I think the the claims of stolen elections will start to escalate very astronomically if 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 President Biden were to start to claim a victory based not on the normal electoral college process, but by reference to the the legally irrelevant national popular vote, I think then you're gonna get pushback on the other side. And how that's tied into other claims about you know ballots in particular states like michigan and pennsylvania i, I can't really foresee all the, how the, all these things might so might in,
0: irrespective of claims about the national vote right but like sort of state level claims about the validity of certain ballots versus claims that those ballots are fraudulent or improper and then you have uh, a state legislature and a governor who are at odds and cannot resolve the the validity of these ballots it can get kicked to Congress, I think. And that's that's separate and distinct from any claims about the national popular vote. I agree with you. I don't think that those claims will ultimately hold any sway, even if, if Biden you know, exceeds Hillary Clinton's margin um, this year. I still don't think it'll matter. I don't think that our system is so out of whack um, that it will make any difference, number one. But also, number two, um, it is unlikely that the number one norm breaker whatever, you know, win the popular vote by that type of margin. And I think in that type of situation, you would have to be concerned. But because it's the opposition party who, for good or bad, are still trying to adhere to some political norms, um, I I don't think it's as big of a concern. I think that if we were in a situation where President Trump was um, someone who won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College then we would ha- be having a different conversation, honestly. I do think that'll be a situation where we, we say, okay, well, what do we do with these norms now, right? Because he'll try to break them. The people decided. Who cares what the Constitution
1: says? Yeah. Although, I, I, I've heard the, I mean, I hope all I'd like to, I'm looking at the clock and think we probably should end for today and resume this another, mm-hmm. another time. We'll have other opportunities before November, but, And I wanna end on the optimism. I mean, I think this last little bit of conversation does seem to me that we're getting into scenarios that seem sufficiently far-fetched and sort of outside what's conventional for American politics, that we're likely, even if it's messy and ugly, again, it's not likely to be 1860. It's not likely to be Um, There may be some marching and protests that are, you know, and people could be legitimately upset at the result from their perspective, but that it becomes relatively contained within the system. And, you know, we we, we go through another four years of of politics until we have another election, um, as opposed to the system falling apart. I, I hope you're right, but I still, at some point, again, it's not, the concession speech isn't legally relevant and I don't know if it has to come from the candidate himself as opposed to other leaders within the party, but there still needs to be some sense of closure, I think, at the, at the level of, of political elites. Otherwise, how do you get Congress to function? How do you get the whole society to function?
0: Oh, my goodness, Ned. I think that you have opened the door for a conversation about when is it irrelevant whether or not something has any legal impact? If the failure to have a concession speech could basically shut down the government, um, <laughs> which I think is right, I think that yes, we, you know, we we always start with that caveat. It doesn't have any legal effect, but we need it, right? It, it serves a, a function in our in our system of government. Um, and in response to your other point about internal optimism, and we are we are talking about scenarios that are unlikely to happen. But then, of course, let me remind you that 2020 is the year of the murder hornet, right? Like, <laughs> Um, murder Hornets, global pandemic.
1: And you've um, heard about the asteroid. Have you heard, I, about the astro- I heard about the
0: asteroid? Yeah. And I do think the Pentagon also confirmed the existence of aliens, but I, that was so <laughs> long ago that I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but, you know, so, so yes, far fetched. And I hope it remains far fetched. You know, um, I hope that we are just, you know, theoretically and (laughs) but i worry i do worry because even if we're at a point where we're comparing this to 19 i'm sorry to 1860 that is a point of worry and so so yes but i agree optimism is warranted people are feeling something right remember election law scholars are always concerned when people are agnostic about voting and elections this is not that year and even then that's a win
1: Right. No, that's true. We're going to see we're, we're seeing high levels of engagement already this. And so let's hope that the system can handle. because it would be a, obviously a tragedy if the capacity of the system can't handle the level of engagement that wants to participate. That would be really, really problematic. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it's always great to talk and to check in with each other.
0: Yes. I'm always happy when we can end on a somewhat positive note at a time where there's not a lot of great positive news, but I know, I,
1: but uh, we have to be grateful for the good things in life. And, and I think we've, we've mentioned families and schools yes. and kids and stuff. So it's always good to think about that too.
0: Absolutely. Well, until next time, Ned, take care.
1: You too, Fernita. Good to talk to you. Great talking. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.